So one of the best books I've ever read about being a man uh, suggests that there are five truths about himself that every man must accept and come to terms with to become the sort of man that God created him to be. It's a pretty good premise, right? Ladies, I don't mean to exclude you. These truths probably apply to you too, but I think this is definitely true with men. When we ignore uncomfortable truths that God wants us to see, we become a weaker version of ourselves. And we can see this in our world, that there are many men who are asleep at the wheel in their lives because they are avoiding some important truths. This author says there's five of them that we must accept. The truths are, life is hard. You are not that important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control. And lastly, you are going to die. I don't know how those truths land for you. It's kind of like a punch in the gut for me. I could talk for an hour about each one of them. I'm not going to do that. But uh, the, the ways that avoiding these truths or ignoring these realities, uh, it makes us uh, unable to become the secure and purposeful men that God created us to be. But what I want to do today is just focus in with you on that last truth, because surely this applies to all of us, men, women, children, all of us. You are going to die. I hope I didn't just wreck your morning just now, uh, but uh, you know, while it feels like I'm being unkind to point this out, but it is like the most obvious truth in life, with the exception of Jesus, death is undefeated, right? Like, and despite that fact, despite the fact that every person who has ever lived dies. Many of us do not come to terms with the inevitability of our own death until we are forced to. This is why I think airplane turbulence is such a great thing. <laughs> right? We need airplane turbulence in our life because I, know, I understand it probably won't bring down a plane. We all understand the science behind it. Or maybe we don't. But nevertheless, we're told that it's not going to bring down the plane. Uh, and we all get that intellectually. But when that pilot comes on the speaker and he sounds really rushed and he's like, flight attendants, please take your seat. I mean, that is a spiritual moment. You know, it is a spiritual moment. And I know there's occasionally moments like that where like we're forced to suddenly deal with the fact that we could die at any moment. I think as believers, we need to really embrace it though. Um, death is not just a possibility that we occasionally think about as believers, but our death is a certainty that we will not avoid and real life is not found in trying to ignore and avoid that truth. I think real life is actually found in embracing that truth. And that is what we see in Jesus. He knew he was going to die. He talked about his death way more than his friends were comfortable with. And he was ready for it when his death finally came. I would submit to you there has never been anyone who died with greater intentionality and purpose than our Savior. Now last week, Kyle, he started our Lenten series where we're looking at these last words that he said from the cross before his death. These are words that were full of intentionality and purpose because he was ready for it. 
And as Kyle mentioned, everything that he said on the cross, it cost him dearly. He had to push up on his pierced feet and flex his arms just a little bit to get enough air in his lungs to gasp out these words for us to hear. And in those final moments when his life is ending, we learn something about where our life begins. Today we're going to look at the second statement that he says from the cross. This one he just says to one other person. He says to another man who is also about to die. But in this brief conversation between these two dying men, there is so much for us to learn. So if you have a Bible, find your way to Luke chapter 23. Uh, We're going to pick up the story at this point. Jesus is on the cross. And I love what Kyle said last week in this scene. Like, you know, we were those soldiers who put him there, right? Those, the nails were our sin. It was our lives that swung the hammer. We were the cause of his death. And while he's hanging on the cross, the most unexpected thing of all things happened after our sin accomplished its work. We heard this gasp that undid everything that we had done. When Jesus gasps out, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. It was a stunning moment. A word spoken between Jesus and his Father on behalf of all humanity. It swept us all up into it. Today's moment is very different than that. It's just a a word spoken from Jesus to one other person that we have the privilege of overseeing or overhearing. Look at Luke 23. We're going to start in verse 32 and then skip down a little bit. Uh, Here's how Luke records it. Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Now let's read the story of these criminals. Skip down to verse 39. One of the criminals who uh, were hanged railed at him saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourselves and us. The other rebuked him saying, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we're receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It's a fascinating scene, right? Three men dying together. One of them responds to his imminent death with anger. And I honestly, I think that is understandable, right? I mean, the powerlessness of death is infuriating. Um, and before we judge this man too harshly for his belligerence, like, let's, let's not forget what Jesus said last week. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. And surely that applies to this man. I don't think Jesus was hanging on the cross taking his insults personally. That's not our Jesus. This man was desperate. He was dying. And in that desperation, he was unkind. That is exactly what you would expect from a dying criminal. What you wouldn't expect is what comes from the second man. The other dying criminal, he responds to his imminent death with humility, which is amazing. And he, like, he throws out this like, just tiniest little spark of faith. Jesus, of course, didn't deserve to be there. These two men did, but Jesus latches on to that spark of faith and he fans it into a mighty flame. And he says uh, a promise to this man. He, he tells him, listen, this is not the end of the story. 
Your death is not the end. These final moments, your, your life is going to continue beyond this moment. And because of Jesus, the next part after this is better than you could have ever expected. It's paradise. Jesus uses a word here, uh, paradise. It means uh, in the Greek, a place of blessedness. The root of this word, though, is the Greek word for garden. Uh, in the Septuagint, which was the Greek version of the Old Testament that was commonly read in Jesus' day, this actually is the same word that is used for the Garden of Eden. Um, so it's almost like Jesus is saying to this man, listen, yeah, th this isn't the end. And in fact, we're going to go back to the beginning. We're going to go back to the way things were meant to be before everything was corrupted. That's what comes next. When was the last time you really thought about heaven? When was the last time you pictured it? Did you picture a garden? I didn't. You know, we, we kind of have this cultural image of heaven that we all grow up with, uh, like that heaven is this place with like a bunch of like big glowy clouds, and there's a fence, because security, right? Um, and I always pictured like there was a line out front, like Disneyland or In-N-Out Burger or something like that. And uh, when I was a kid, I used to always think about, uh, tell me I'm not the only one who thought about it. I used to always think about like, you want to make sure that you don't stand behind the wrong person. Like I wanted to be behind someone who like just barely got in, right? Because then they'll take it easy on you. They'll be like, oh, Jonathan, we're so good to see you. You don't want to be behind like Mother Teresa. Like, you know, if you're behind her, you should just give your place up and move back in the line because that's going to hurt your chances. Um, am I the only one who thought like this? Please. Okay, it's just me. That's okay. I could accept that. Um, because then, you know, you, we read the Bible and we realize heaven is nothing like that. That is not a picture of heaven. The descriptions of heaven in the Bible, like they are these very evocative pictures. And the biblical writers, they hadn't been there right? So they're seeing visions, and those visions are a little fuzzy and sometimes hard to understand. Jesus, on the other hand, he had been there, right? Like heaven was like his hometown. That's where he's from. And when he describes it, he describes it as a garden paradise. You know, that kind of connects to what the Bible says, like in the book of Revelation where John talks about our final destination, not being up there in the clouds, but that God's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, and he is going to dwell here among us. Heaven is described as this tangible place, more like the Garden of Eden than a glowing cloud city. And I'm fairly certain there will not be a line out front, uh, but if there was a line, this is the guy who would be first in line. Shocking, right? That's an arresting truth that the first one home is a common criminal. That teaches us something about our Savior, doesn't it? Here's what I'd say, and I think this is absolutely true. Jesus isn't picky about our faith. When Jesus sees, like even the smallest evidence of faith, his response to that faith is overwhelmingly merciful. No matter how small the faith, what we see in Jesus is he's like, I'll take it. That counts. It's a great quote by Richard Newhouse. He says this, Jesus is not fastidious about the quality of faith. He takes what he can get, so to speak, and gives immeasurably more than he receives. 
He takes our faith more seriously than we do, and he makes of it more than we ever could. His response to our faith is greater than our faith. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you're like me, sometimes we worry like about our faith. Like, I, you know, I don't, do I have enough? Do I have enough to get in? What Newhouse is saying here is so important. The point is not the quality of our faith. That is not the point. The point is the mercy of our Savior who gives us more grace than we could ever hold. That is the point. Heaven is not some test graded on the curve where your good deeds have to outweigh your bad deeds. You don't have to get like a 70% on the test to get in. Like if you have a fraction of 1%, it sure does appear that Jesus is like, that'll do. My grace will take care of the rest. That counts. I'm going to say something, it might sound a little controversial, so I'll explain it, but I, I want to say it first, and if you believe the truthfulness of this story, it should not be surprising to us. Heaven is remarkably easy to get into. Any genuine faith is saving faith, any genuine faith, it's true. Now, you might be a student of the Bible or a theologian. You might say, now, wait a second, Jonathan. I have some questions at this point. Are you saying everyone gets into heaven? No, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it's not hard to get into heaven. It's not. The illustration of the point is the thief on the cross. It wasn't hard. But you might say, well, wait a second. How do we make this jive with what Jesus said? Think about like the Sermon on the Mount. Didn't Jesus say, wide is the gate, broad is the road that leads to destruction, but small is the gate, narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Well, yes, he did say that. And in fact, in that same sermon, he said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. And he also, by the way, said, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect in that same sermon. So he's raising this bar impossibly high for us. And right after he says this whole thing about the narrow gate, he says, well, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. It even says people who prophesied and cast out demons and performed miracles, that he would say to them, away from me, I never knew you evildoers. So if all of that is true, and if he meant all that stuff that he said, how do we reconcile this with this thief on the cross who clearly was far from righteous, clearly far from perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect, probably didn't do the will of the Father one day of his life, but clearly gets in. How do we reconcile what Jesus says other places with what happens on the cross? Listen, this is so important as we read our Bible. And I see so many Christians get confused uh, and, and struggle with this point. There is something that we all need to understand about Jesus and specifically about how he teaches in some of those passages that we read in the Gospels. And this is it. Jesus' teaching was primarily focused on living in the kingdom of God. That's what he was instructing us how to do. Now, the thief on the cross, he missed that experience. Like, he did not have this abundant life of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus is teaching us how to live in. And that's tragic. That's sad. We're sad for him. He experienced what Jesus is talking about, this broad path of selfishness that leads to destruction. That's why he was on the cross, because he did some things wrong. He wasn't following God. The fact that he missed out on the kingdom of God on earth does not mean that he was beyond the mercy of our Savior and the hope of heaven. Does that make sense? Jesus rarely, and I would even make a case that almost never, uh, taught about how to get into heaven one day. 
That was not the focus. And in fact, for somebody who came to make a way for us to get into heaven, he seems wholly unconcerned with the problem, right? He seems very concerned with calling us to the kingdom life. He seems very concerned with calling us to be his disciples. That's what he taught on. And I would suggest that if heaven was really hard to get into, he'd spend a lot more time on the subject. But think about even his great commission. What he didn't say to his disciples is go, therefore, in all the nations and get them into heaven. That's really important. What he did say is go and make disciples. Teach them to embrace what I taught every day of their life. That is the real challenge. In these passages where he's talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, he is right. The kingdom of God is a narrow road that only a few embrace. But that's different than the question of who gets in. When Jesus looks at his people, when he looks at the church, I honestly think this is what he sees of us. He sees a lot of saved people who are unfortunately not always embracing the kingdom of God in their life. And I think he looks at people like that and he grieves. He doesn't grieve because we're going to hell, but he grieves because we're missing the point. The point was not just get us into heaven, but the point was to experience the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven one day. That's the point, to walk with God every day. And while it seems biblically totally possible, and I'm happy to dialogue with you if you're not sure about this, it is totally possible to not really live for God one day of your life and still get into heaven. Thief on the cross did it. You will not see anyone in the Bible teaching us how to do that. Because why would they? Not because it's impossible, but because why would anybody want that? Heaven is the starting place for this journey. Heaven is the thing where God's like, listen, I'm going to take this fear of death thing off the table so that now you can fully and fearlessly live for me on earth. Unfortunately, I think sometimes in churches, uh, it is taught that the heaven question is the hard thing. And we could sometimes inadvertently or sometimes on purpose, we teach this picture of God where he's up in heaven and he's got his arms folded like a bouncer and he's asking questions like, why? Why, why should I let you into my heaven? You know, prove it. Prove you deserve to be here. There is no way to make that picture of God reconcile with this picture of Jesus hanging on the cross saying, today, Today, my friend, today you will get paradise because you dared to hope and you dared to throw yourself on my mercy. That is our God. Peter says it this way, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Author of Hebrews says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he didn't sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. When we die, there is not some God up in heaven, arms folded, asking, why should I let you into my heaven? If we have any sort of faith at all, no matter how weak it is, no matter how misguided it may be, no matter how confused or inadequate our faith and our understanding may be, we get what this criminal got for his tiny little mustard seed of faith. We discover a merciful God with arms flung wide, 
What Jesus said is this. So the lost son got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. This is the mercy of God waiting for us after we die. And we have confidence in that, not because of the adequacy of our faith, but because of the abundant mercy and grace of our Savior. Uh, There's a man who affected my life very deeply, but I only met him once, um, and he was my father's father. He was my grandfather. Um, And I suspect, I had a really good dad, I suspect part of the reason I had a good dad, who was a good man and a loving father, is because he saw in his father what not to do. And just, I don't have this, but I know so many people in our church who are doing this who did not get the love of a parent, um, but they're giving it to their kids, and that is the most admirable thing to me. Um, I only met my grandfather once, and I was almost too young to remember it, so I just have kind of a few images in my head from that meeting. Um, But I suspect this. I suspect that I saw the impact of my grandfather every day of my life when my dad chose to be a different sort of dad uh, than what he ever got. Now, years after my grandfather died, um, my dad writes Bible studies and books and stuff like that, and he, he actually, he wrote about my grandfather, and he wrote about this story that we're reading right here. Um, I just want to read what he writes. This is my dad. He says, Jesus' response to the thief on the cross has been a special encouragement to me. You see, my dad was a lifelong alcoholic. For the few times he remained sober, he was a really nice guy. Sorry. But for most of my life, his sobriety was seldom present. In high school, he left us. We seldom heard from him. In 1986, he died after a lingering illness, alone and estranged from our family. Our family had prayed for him. We'd sent him a modern language New Testament before he died. We found it among his meager remaining effects. Did he read it? The worn pages made it seem that he had. Did he believe it? We're not sure. When I wonder if my dad is in heaven... I can become discouraged. However, scripture passages like this one about the thief on the cross give me hope that maybe in the forced sobriety of his last illness, he turned to Christ. If he did, I know that my dad needed to bring nothing more to the cross to obtain mercy than what the thief brought, just himself and his faith in Jesus. This gives me hope that someday I may be reunited with him in paradise. I don't know about you, do you have people who are important to you, who have died, and you don't know the status of their faith? Um, With my grandfather, the only evidence we had was the evidence of a red Bible. But here's the thing, our hope is not in the quality of his faith. 
Our hope is in the character of our merciful Savior. We have this Jesus who is so eager to dispense mercy that even in his last moments, he is handing it out to the least deserving. And I think the reason Jesus let us glimpse this is because he wants us to understand it has never been about the worthiness of our faith. It has never been about that. He will take anything. It is about the worthiness of and the eagerness of our Savior to dispense mercy. That is what our hope rests in. Mercy is the nature of our God. It's what he does with his last gasps. You know, I think we need to learn something looking at our brother, this thief on the cross, right? He precedes us in death, but hey, our time is coming, right? How do we live now in light of this mercy that we see? Here's just one suggestion, one way that we can apply this. I think we need to focus on Jesus, not on our faith. This is a temptation in the spiritual life to look at our faith. It's so full of contradictions. It's so full of doubts, and it's inadequate, and it's half-hearted at times. And we worry about how small our faith is. And we're like, well, I'm going to try to work some more faith into my life so that I have enough. That's not actually how faith works. Instead, when we look at Jesus, when we look at our Savior, full of mercy for you and I, that is what grows our faith. Our efforts to grow it don't. There's something unusual about the Christian life. It's not like other things. The more you obsess about how you're doing, the more you focus on how you're doing, am I doing enough, is my faith growing, the less your faith actually grows. But the more you stop focusing on your faith and how you're doing and start focusing on the person of Jesus Christ, somehow then you actually start to grow. The point of your faith is not your faith. The point of your faith is Jesus. And the more you make it about your faith, the harder it is to have faith. The more you make it about Jesus and his mercy, the more you'll grow. And I don't totally know why it works that way. It feels counterintuitive to me. I just know that it's true. Let me give you one quick example. If you want to be a merciful person, the way that you become that is by experiencing the mercy that Jesus has for you, connecting to it, having the humility to see your sin and see his forgiveness and see his mercy will make you merciful, especially towards people in your life who do not deserve it. And let's be honest, those are the only people who really need mercy. But you want to be merciful and you just start trying really hard to be merciful, trying really hard to forgive people who have hurt you, it's just going to leave you frustrated and bitter. The power to be a merciful person comes from looking at the cross, experiencing the mercy of Jesus, not from willpower. That's not how the spiritual life works. So don't focus on your faith, focus on Jesus. That's where you will find your life. And I know that may sound like an oversimplification, but let's look at our brother, this thief, This dying thief, he knew his only hope was to look at Jesus. I mean, think about it. He had nothing left to give. Like he had uh, nothing to offer. His death was imminent. He had an afternoon, right? That's all he had, an afternoon. An afternoon in a desperate hope for mercy. Now, I suspect that our death is not as imminent as his, I hope we all have a little bit longer, but even if we have a hundred more years, we don't have anything more than this guy had, a desperate hope for mercy, and it's looking at Jesus that transforms us. It is not the effort to transform that transforms us. 
Let me ask you to do something. It might make you a little uncomfortable, but it's okay. We'll do it together. We'll all be uncomfortable together like a real family. It'll be great. Um, Here's what I want to ask you to do. Picture the moment of your death. I know that's weird, but you can picture it however you want. You can picture it many, many years from now, peacefully in a hospital bed. Um, Personally, I like to picture my death in a fiery plane crash. Um, That's just me. You don't have to picture that. However you would like to picture it, picture your death. In that moment where your heart beats its final beat, because you have faith in God, because you have hope in his mercy, after that last heartbeat, your soul will awaken in the presence of the blessed garden of paradise. I'm telling you, that day, that will be a pretty good day for you. Because you will discover this, that regardless of how inadequate your faith on earth, regardless of how messed up your spiritual life was, his mercy was greater. You'll discover on that day what the thief discovered on his last day, that our Savior has for you more grace than your arms could ever hold. And that day of your death, I really believe this, will be your best day. Because that will be the day that you discover that every hope you ever had is realized in the arms of a God who never gave up on you. And who died on this cross just so he could have that day with you and welcome you into his rest. Now, come back to today. Stop picturing your death. Your death is likely not as imminent as that thief's was. But when it comes, your hope and your experience will be the same. Here's my question. Considering what is waiting for you, what would you like to do with today? 